pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. In this episode, we're joined by Matt Foley, and we learn that all physicians are kind of disgusting. So today, we're going to talk about changing behavior. Emergency medicine is change, and we have to feel very comfortable about this. We have a guest today, and our guest today is Matthew Foley, who is vice chair at North Shore Hospital. And I would like to start by asking you, how do you motivate your faculty to change their behavior, especially if it's something where it's sort of you need them to comply? Yeah, motivation is easy when it affects the the person in a positive manner and they have bought into what you're trying to change. The difficult part is in most scenarios, we're trying to change a behavior in which the faculty haven't bought into the change, um, haven't provided them the enough evidence, or they don't see that the outcome is going to be a benefit to them or the patients that they're providing care to. I like that a lot. I think that it is if you can frame it in a way where people want to change, that's great. Yeah, and, and in the middle ground is at times when everybody knows the change that you want to make will be effective and good for everybody, the patient, the practitioner, um, and it's still difficult to drive that behavior. Like what? Hand washing. Hand washing, everybody knows, is going to be good for the patient, um, good for the patients around them, decrease of C. diff in the hospital, and every everybody, because I say every, there's probably people that do hand wash before and after every patient. I don't know if I've met them. There, I haven't done there, it. There are, there, are no, there, there are no people who... That doesn't no. exist. Yeah. No. So I, I walk I, I admit, and I just gonna... say I washed my hands. So whoever's checking in the room believes that I washed my hands. So, so we get a higher compliance. So one of the things I'm that I, I have absolutely hands. done is um, I know that it makes the patient feel safer, more confident in me. If I walk in and as I start to speak with them, I wash my hands. Yeah, and personally, I feel better. I feel like when I go in and I wash my hands as I start to talk to the patient, I'm starting off on the right foot. I'm providing better patient care because it's it's more valid patient interaction. They see it, and it's a. It, but I don't always do it. So, I, and so I that's, want other the, that's the thing. It. It's not it's not consistent. I, I the the recommendation that I wash my hands before and after every patient. And then again, before, even though kind of the after of the last guy is still before this guy, that should count. But, but I've been told, no, it, it should be twice per patient, every patient. Uh, and, and even if I remember a few times, I then speed through three people and then I go, oh, I don't think I wash my hands. And, and really, if I'm going to be brutally honest with myself, I don't feel that bad about it. And then when it's a neutropenia or chemotherapy or a real, then I make a big deal about it. And I tell the patient... If you don't see the person wash their hands before they touch you, you tell them that I said you were supposed to tell them to wash their hands before they touch you. But that's a rare moment. I find this really interesting because here is something that we know we should do and that systems have put an immense amount of effort in. The only reason that there's Purell everywhere around the department or whatever the chemical stuff we're supposed to be washing our hands is. So we've, we've made it as easy as possible. We have signs up. We get told this on a regular basis. And we still suck at it. So imagine 
for something that everyone agrees should be done and probably helps? Because you said, uh, uh, Dr. Foley said, hey, sometimes people don't see the benefit. But this is the thing that you we all know, we still don't do it. So imagine about the things that we're not sure about, how much we do those things. So let's talk about scripting, right? So well, I... is the worst. Is well, that the thing so where I have I, to read I, the index card that says, hello, hello, I'm Robot9, I my position is this, uh, how may I help you? So what are your thoughts on scripting? The transition is really interesting to me, and we didn't mention this before in our pre-talk, but scripting is something that um, is, is a similar behavior change that we've actually measured and we've improved upon. Hand-washing, we haven't. So it's fascinating that they're both things that help us with the patient and with medical care, and one, we failed on changing the behavior over and over and over again, being the hand-washing, and scripting which I feel would be more difficult to change a person's behavior to get them to walk into a room and say a certain amount of things so that their Prescani scores go up, which they may not believe in. So, and wait, succeed on so that. Prescani scores are like Santa Claus? <laughs> that is great. Oh, wait, we're not supposed to say that. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see if you're still working here tomorrow. And then we'll, uh, so, so there were two things I heard. One was we are able to change scripting, which is like hand-washing, a thing that helps patients. I don't think that most clinicians accept that, uh, like, it feels fake, right? It's like, I tell me, I don't see how this is helping me take better care of the patient, reading off your index card. Isn't that the complaint? Yeah, that may be even the more fascinating thing about that scripting has worked to, even but, but, though the providers may not believe in it. But does people it? People do it. But, is, but does scripting help take care of patients. Is, it, is, there, are there, is there a patient-oriented outcome that is improved when more people follow the script? I'm not sure. So I would, we would get less complaints. Okay, so, so, there, so there's that a is, metric. So That's that a real is metric. a metric. I yeah. like that. Okay. Um, and so the second thing was the why did the hand-washing not work and why does scripting Wait, work? Can we, can we yeah. stick to scripting for yeah, one sure. second? I was just thinking about what we're talking about. And, and isn't scripting just another kind of modeling. And we have sat here as in this podcast a hundred times and talked about how modeling mm. is really important and, and you model behavior. And this script is simply a model of behavior that we believe allows for consistent communication. Right, and we, and we do scripting in actual medical care. We, we started off with scripting in the, the um, provider-patient relationship. But we do it in mental, you know, we tell people what to say. Does that hurt? Does that not hurt? Are we eliciting tenderness or are we um, asking if it's tender? So the key part of, of modeling is always you, you see a behavior uh, and it works. You see it work and then you go, wait, I'm going to adopt that behavior. So with scripting, it's someone else is saying it works and we're trying to get people to adopt it. Well, I'm trying to remember an example of something that... I sort of knew I should do. Uh, in my case, it's going to be telling people to stop smoking. And I, I remember in the beginning thinking, I'm going to tell people they're not smoking. It's the right thing to do. It felt right. I've been told it makes a difference. Yet I did not do it right up front. And it took somebody explaining to me that 1% of the people that, are, that come into the emergency medicine who are smokers... If I tell all of them to stop smoking, 1% will stop smoking. 1% seems small, but we see a lot of people. So to me, that was a worthwhile change. And then honestly, I started with this very scripted response to, you need to stop smoking. I stopped with just the, hey, I really think you should stop smoking. 
but I started to name the consequences and then I gave them the first step. Like, I will help you by giving you this card, by helping you with this medication. And that was a big thing for me. So you uh, uh, had to hear why it was going to work, that the some percentage it would actually help them, and that made the behavior more palatable. And then the pain was the initial trying to remember to do it, but now you do it all the time. I don't think about your... it anymore. It's just part of my, if I hear smoking, I will not let that go unanswered. It's part of your standard practice. You always, always do it. And do you ever have reinforcement if a patient came back to you and said, you're the person that got me to stop smoking? Yes, but it is, I'll take reinforcement, not just for what I do, yeah. because uh, hopefully I don't get a ton of people bouncing back to me. But I, what I hear is... <laughs> No, I stopped smoking since I had this disease or since a doctor told me to stop smoking. And I think that that's, that's very worthwhile. And, and there is a, a actual scripted phrase, apparently, uh, that is an evidence-based, uh, you know, uh, more likely to induce behavior change around smoking. And a lot of primary care offices get to bill for smoking cessation because they have that phrase. Uh, so that's, a, I think, a pretty evidence-based, the script actually works. Uh, and, and one reason it might work better than hand-washing is because of the of the modeling, right? The more people do it and the more they see it, the more they do it. So maybe there is a critical mass of hand-washing you need to achieve to get it to like become uh, uh, whatever, memefied and spread. So that memefied, that's, uh, I'm not sure that's I mean, a word, but I like it. I do know that if you look at the literature on forming habits, uh, and a lot of this stuff is around uh, workouts uh, and weight loss, uh, they do say that it takes about a month to six weeks of doing something mm. regularly, of forcing yourself to do it regularly before it becomes essentially habituated. Yeah, the scripting for you for the, the smoking seemed to work because it's really fast. It doesn't take you much time. It, there's very little effort in it. You have a bias because you got into medicine because you want to help the patient that you're seeing. And you feel like that that's going to be worthwhile. And then you've been reinforced by it. I don't know if we get that in hand washing. I, I don't know. It, it's effort. I, I, I got to go over. I got to wash my hands. I've got to dry my hands. I've got to fit my hands in the gloves that are not wet. That are wet. And then fumble in front of the patient and then do it again afterwards. And I don't know if I transferred C. diff to that patient from the patient before because I never saw it. Having that follow-up, having a, a true belief in an outcome change is a big part of the motivation for change. So that's that's a bit of what I think uh, Dr. Foley said in the beginning. was like if you can see the, the end, you see the goal, uh, and say this gets me there, you're more likely to adopt it. Uh, but we know we don't because C. diff patients still get cohorted upstairs, so I'm 100% sure that we are not washing our hands. <laughs> so I'm 100% sure because I experienced that. Motivation in this case means convincing your audience that it's worth making the change. And, and with adult learners, that can mean hitting it from a bunch of different sides because what motivates one is not going to always motivate the other. You have to provide change that is doable. If you make me write a paragraph that takes me 10 minutes, I will do that on nobody. Uh, but with hand washing, it's not that difficult. It's just so often that it, it should be, we should be better at it. And what other aspects of this sort of motivating uh, do we need to work on? The last part, and I think it, for the hand washing of why it may fail, is often you need a carrot or a stick. The, the, the stick in hand washing is a secret shopper comes around and says, your department's at 60% hand washing. And we report that out to the faculty and everybody says, oh, we're at 60%. You know, that doesn't, that hasn't been working. 
the carrot for the stop smoking is you know you're going to save somebody cancer. Like, that's a good reinforcement. That's a good carrot. And in all of these other, there's a lot of things where we try to change behavior on just for metric and metrics and outcomes that sometimes a stick works, sometimes reinforcement by um, a, a carrot works, a prize of some so, sort. So maybe we need the feedback of here's another 90-year-old who died of C. diff that they did not have when they were admitted for pneumonia because we can't seem to wash our hands. And well, so a lot of the, the lean stuff talks about putting a board up mm -hmm. that shows outcomes mm -hmm. uh, in a very open public place mm -hmm. so that so that you get this feedback. So there's transparency, open public place. There's sort of culture change. We all have agreed we're going to do it this way. Peter Pronovost, I want to say, who does a lot of the Hopkins quality stuff uh, and, and is into uh, patient safety and harm reduction, he's the guy who said, like, we can make central line infections go to zero, we can do things. And, and I believe that it, that was one of the places where the uh, one of the strategies used was shaming, where they would just take a random hand, put it in an auger plate, and then put the color pattern of all of the fecal bugs that grew on that hand with, their, with the person's name. And you know that that person started washing their hands more than they did. I have always not loved shaming, yeah, uh, but I do know that uh, there are tons of places that post your RVUs, that yeah. post how quickly you see patients. Mm -hmm. Some of them do them with your name attached, and some of them do them without your name attached. I, I think feedback is essential. I am, am not as big a fan of shaming. And carrots work too. So, you know, you, you have a contest between each department in the hospital who has the highest rate of hand washing. Mm. They get funds for a party, an ice cream party, whatever it is. But it raises the whole right. hospital because everybody's right. trying to win it. Um, sustainability with that is is difficult. So gamification of hand washing. This right. is what we should do. So, okay. One of the things that we uh, said a few times that I heard Tom say, uh, well, you know, uh, and you said as well, uh, well, it wasn't that difficult to incorporate. It's just this little phrase. But uh, we are in a time when every little, it's just one extra click box. It's just one more macro. It's just uh, at the thousandth little thing, uh, there's pushback. Are we making good choices about what behaviors we're changing? Uh, and is this just another, uh, the solution for everything is to change what the clinician is doing? I don't think we're making good choices all the time because multiple people in a facility or institution or system are making the choices that affect everybody. So it becomes difficult in that manner. But, but what you're saying is part of the reason I'm really motivated. What I have found is that if I let other people make these decisions for us, they don't always make the right decisions. But if clinicians, if emergency medicine physicians are the ones driving the change, then the right decisions get made. And I think when you, when you started by asking the question, just one more thing, I think a solution to a lot of these um, behavior changes is removing barriers. So if you're taking away things to accomplish a behavior change, um, that's beneficial. That you're gonna, I think you're going to get more outcomes or better outcomes. And, and how many of these uh, coming from above things are uh, EMR-based, right? There's a new thing, and we're going to have to click this thing to show compliance of this many people. Uh, I have to get the uh, HIV screening box checked. I can say very few good things about EMRs <laughs> in general. I'm shocked. Um, so... Yeah, EMR is, is a new facet of our lives that we just, we haven't seemed to solve to um, integrate into our practice yet. It's just tough. 
All right, so uh, there, there's not going to be a, a, an end, but we got to choose carefully about the behaviors we change. We got to uh, have some buy-in for there's a real patient-based uh, reason we're doing stuff, uh, and we got to try to make it easy for people. Which is funny though, because IT is always the answer to some of these behavior chains. Just put a click box there, and then people will do it. Yeah, except that so often IT is such a slow and difficult change yeah. that actually changing the medical record may be the most difficult part of this. Well, uh, uh, are we trying to change a behavior or are we trying to change a metric and a document that says I am compliant with someone's idea of uh, this is how it should right. be? And right. we are always going to yes. do better when right. we are yeah. when we are doing the right thing for the patient. Yeah. When we are changing a behavior that we can show makes a difference. Absolutely. I agree with that. Okay, so uh, what is our article for today, Tom? So we're not doing an article today. Uh, today we are going to talk uh, about a book. Uh, the book is Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. Uh, it is by uh, Chip Heath and Dan Heath, 2010. So the Heath brothers uh, made a book that a lot of people are aware of called uh, Made to Stick. Uh, and this is like their follow-up. It, it is. And I liked your comment that change is always hard to make. This book gives us a path to follow. Okay, practical so, guide. Practical Make guide. It I will give you a one-line summary of the book, and then I'm hoping you'll explain the book. So, <laughs> uh, Switch is about how you can lead and encourage changes of human behavior, both in yourself and in your organization, by focusing on the three forces that influence it. The rider, the elephant, and the path. Uh, what? Okay, I have to say... Uh, that uh, that is the worst one sentence summary of any book. I have I have I read that book? That doesn't sound like the book I read. There, uh, th I like the description you said. This is the practical guide to, to making change happen. So their analogy is uh, there's a rider. He's sitting on an elephant, and they're going down a path. So obviously, you need to buy an elephant. That's how you make things happen. Okay, so step one probably involves that rider. Tell us about that. Okay, so the rider is essentially like your brain, your, your rational decision-making mind. Uh, your rider is the guy who is supposedly in charge and uh, pointing the direction of where the elephant's going to go and looking down the path and saying, that's where I want to end up. So that's like the, the driver, right? The, the problem is... You're not at the path, and you haven't taken a step towards the path. That's why you're reading the book. Uh, so one of their steps is, is trying to uh, get the writer involved uh, by streamlining uh, the, the direction. So their recommendation is to focus on a very specific actionable item and script out what that is as the first step towards making change happen. So I like that because I've had a lot of cases where... If you look at the entirety of a problem, you do nothing. But if you get a single change, you can take that one step at a time thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this is practical advice, and it also kind of speaks to, I think, when people haven't made progress in a certain thing, a certain problem, it, it, it's often looked at as laziness or uh, you know just uh, apathy. But a lot of times it's like paralysis. It's decision paralysis. So focusing the writer on a very specific item kind of removes a lot of those things. And no, like do this thing. I can't tell you, uh, you're not gonna respond well to lose 100 pounds by next Christmas, but you might respond well to no ice cream after 10 p.m. That is a, the, the rider understands, okay, there's a goal, I can see down this path. So lesson one, focus all your energy on one specific critical aspect of the change you want to make. 
and basically stops your brain from shutting down the whole process. Right. No decision paralysis. All right. Uh, lesson two has to do with the elephant. So, so this I can understand. Uh, I am all about getting people motivated, getting them motivated to do lots of stuff. I motivate my consults. I motivate my residents. So in this step, you have to figure out a way to, to really want to make that change. Uh, so this is the, oh, you know, uh, understanding why you should do a thing because the writer says losing weight will help my sugar uh, is almost never enough, right? Because the, he's not taking the steps. So the elephant is the emotional, like whatever, primitive brain pathway, uh, the, the motivation part. Uh, so, so how do you whip the elephant? Well, one of the things that uh, we talked about, you put it in weight loss. Weight loss isn't just, hey, I should be thinner because of whatever. It's, I want to live longer. My diabetes is killing me, uh, and I can actually affect that by losing weight. So I, the motivation I, I, I think might that's be... almost there. That's right. like, and hey, hey elephant, wake up. Uh, this is going to really affect your life. And your kids need you to be around and okay. see your grandkids. And now the elephant goes, oh, okay. So this goes back to the old smoking ads that, you know, uh, that this is your brain or this is your brain on drugs. Mm. Uh, and, and you'd watch that. That, that was your drug. smoking ad? Well, it was. It was <laughs> what a, were you smoking, Tom? Nothing, nothing, right? Well, <laughs> the anti-drug ads of the 80s, yes. which, which evoked an emotional response mm. for why you should stop. The smoking ads now are showing people who have suffered the consequences of smoking. And you're seeing people, you know, who are talking to you, who are physically affected by their smoking in a way that evokes an emotional response. Right. And this is a, a thing that we, we see in, in politics all the time. A statistical table of why this policy might change this percentage of expenditures or save this many lives is not as effective as a story of a person who is affected, right? It's that emotional response. So what's the third lesson? The third lesson is a smooth the path. If the writer says, this is what we need to do next, and the elephant says, I am motivated to do that thing, uh, then the best next thing is to remove the obstacles that are in that path. That, that, so this has to do with the environment and, and making things easy uh, and, and removing sort of the barriers to the behavior change. So it's when my wife reminds me every Monday that I should take the trash out, and I completely ignore that. So what looks to her like laziness, uh, I, I'm, you can make her listen to this part, uh, is, is actually competing things where you, you're in a state of equilibrium, Tom, right? The future Tom uh, knows he's supposed to take the, the dishes or the garbage out and, and some, for some reason doesn't do it. Um, so, so that state of equilibrium, we can either increase the pushing forces and make your wife like call you and yell at you while you do the task. And every 30 seconds she will say, is it done? Is it done? Is it done? And that will motivate. Okay. Or you could do the much more effective thing, uh, remove the obstacle. Uh, we're going to put uh, wheels Tom's... on the garbage okay, can I was... and make it an easy thing to I, do. I was going to say Game of Thrones on Tom's tablet and put it in the kitchen above the garbage can. Or, you know, so when the show ends, I'm supposed to now pick this thing up right next to me, right? So smooth the path, remove the obstacle, uh, move the barrier is almost always a better choice than whipping people to do something. I like the uh, congestive heart failure uh, analogy here. We continually try to find ways to make the heart work better. Uh, we... Uh, you know, we work a lot on your uh, venous inflow, but it makes perfect sense that taking away some of that after pressure is equally important. I, 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 th I think it's actually a great analogy, and I think it's more important, right? What works better for most of our patients? Is it the high-dose nitroglycerin drip, or is it dobutamine? It's 100% the nitro. 
That's our, our uh, article slash book of the week. Thanks. Okay, so we're going to do the that's not a thing. What's not a thing, Tom? What do you got? Hick, um, I, I, I don't have a that's not a thing. I'm sorry. See, I was supposed to do the article last time and I flailed and now you're, oh, but you're, why? Well, you, I'm not supposed to say I'm sorry. Why? Right? No, but, but you, you messed up. Well, uh, I remember being told that if you make a mistake in medicine, uh, you should definitely go and talk to the patient about it. Uh, but you weren't supposed to say you were sorry. Oh, because I'm sorry meant you admitted that there was an error, and now you're going to be liable for the error and probably get sued and cost the hospital system millions of dollars and lose your job. Right. I, I really don't want to lose my job. Okay, so that's not a thing. Uh, there has been a lot of people who have uh, had this fear that saying sorry is an admission of guilt and is going to come back in a lawyer uh, transcript that says you said this thing. But in fact, uh, when we look at it, there has even been uh, places where the hospital policy has been uh, to script a I'm sorry, and their risk management expenditures are lower and patient satisfaction is higher. So it is it is better to go back and say I'm sorry because because you're sharing the experience because because you are honestly sorry that something went wrong. So it is so it is because you are both being uh, upfront and transparent with the patient, which reflects well upon you, uh, and what you are sorry uh, for is that we didn't deliver a perfect care. Or that a bad uh, thing happened. Or that a bad thing happened. So, and, and I'm sorry is not an admission of guilt and is most often seen as a humanizing, oh, the doctor actually cares about me, which I know is maybe not on the metrics, but is important. I definitely say I'm sorry to patients a lot, both uh, mostly about their conditions. I'm sorry you're in a lot of pain. I'm sorry uh, that the wait was so long. Yeah. These things are very normal. Right. So I, I love that you brought up the wait was so long because that's definitely something that is uh, ostensibly within our purview, right? It's not the, I'm sorry that this bad thing happened to you, the accident you came in with. This is a thing that uh, our hospital system is somewhat responsible for, right? Uh, but it's not a uh, guilt. It's a, uh, it's a, I'm sorry that the conditions are as they are, and I'm going to do my best. Right. I am admitting that, that this is not perfect, yeah. and, and it would probably have been better not to have the long wait, but it doesn't mean that I'm a, a bad person, hate you, or anything Great. like that. So acknowledging the wait uh, is better than a denial that there was no wait, uh, which is what not saying sorry sometimes looks like. So can you articulate what the that's not a thing so is? So telling people, doctors, not to say I'm sorry for their to their patients when something bad has happened or when there's an error is not a thing and not does thing. not lead to legal whatever. Not a thing. Thank you. So, Pick, uh, what are we going to do today? I have a resident that I was recently observing, and uh, they went in the room and had a great patient encounter, but they opened with, dude, what's up? And I was like, really? Are you, that's your introduction? So I'm going to script for this resident uh, two different introductions, and we're going to debrief after them and see how they went, and we're going to try to standardize that behavior in a way that is not going to get him complained about, even though that patient loved him. Great. That's awesome, dude. All right. <laughs> what about you, Matt? I would like to remove a barrier to optimize on behavior change. And since an EMR is the, the bane of our existence right now, and anytime I want to find any provider, all I have to do is go look at the computer. That's where we're sitting. Decreasing the time we sit at the computer is beneficial, to say the least. So for every click that we need to add in our EMR for whatever reason, wherever it comes from, I am going to 
request, request would be politically correct, demand might be a little bit stronger, to take away two clicks somehow that aren't necessary. That is the best New Year's resolution I think Wait, I have ever heard. Can I, I don't, For I don't everyone usually... added, we take two away from the EMR, I, I'm in a dream job. I got I, one. I don't actually work at your hospital, can I come here? <laughs> so, uh, and for me, what am I going to do today? Well, I'm going to wash my hands. Yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're, yeah, okay. I was not going to wash hands. It's not going to happen. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get around.